Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in New York, I'm pleased to say, is Howard Ward, CIO of Growth Equities at Gabelli Funds. Good morning to you, Howard. Good morning, John. What are we looking for in about 90 minutes? What are you looking for? Well, I think we're going to have a good number. And I know I can't tell you whether it's going to be 185 or 250, but it probably is going to be in there somewhere. And I just would point out that, you know, we have to hold back from putting too much weight on any one month's numbers. You need to look at the trend line three-month average. And not only that, but remember that these numbers tend to get revised once or twice. And so the headline number we get today may not last. Well, the average number through the year so far is north of 200K. It's pretty stunning. How would we use set up? Did you think the economy would go out to this higher sort of higher trajectory that it's reached over the last uh, couple of months or so? Uh, I would tell you yes, because we're having a terrific year. So we must have been doing something right. Uh, in our in our growth fund, which is up about 20% year to date and and 29% plus over the last 12 months, but that's been with a focus on def- what I'm going to describe as defensive growth stocks, which means zero weights to underweights in energy, uh, industrials, producer durables, and we also don't happen to own any consumer staples, which are not experiencing much of any growth. So we've been positioned properly uh, for the market that we've had. And, and I think that's really the way to go because the economy is starting to slow now, even though it's doing very well. It's going to slow from the 4.2% pace in the second quarter to finish the year probably with around a 3% growth uh, in, in the back half of the year between Q3 and Q4. And then it's probably going to slow a little bit below that for next year. So uh, your argument at the moment, the argument that you're pushing is stay invested, but get a little bit more defensive. Yes, I think uh, defensive growth is is the place to be as long as the Fed is tightening, uh, rates are rising. Uh, when the Fed tightens, PEs go down. It happens virtually every single time. Yeah. And it's happened so far this year. We started the year with an 18 PE on forward earnings. Now we're down to 16. Uh, if the Fed were to stop tightening, I would be uh, a little bit more uh, aggressive in terms of uh, unwinding my more defensive growth posture. And I think that's the argument right now, Tom, that with high yields and higher rates, it's going to weigh on any potential multiple expansion. Can the earnings deliver? Yeah. I mean, to me, Howard, what's so important here within your linkage of the economy into equities and your huge double-digit success and outperformance of Alpha, we could talk all day about the underperformance of the smart people, asset allocating and such. Howard, the the bottom line is the linkage of animal spirit and nominal GDP over to revenue growth. And it's had a a tangible pop. What happens if the economy, not, you know, gloom and doom, but if the economy ebbs, does the revenue growth ebb? Well, the revenue growth has been surprisingly stable for the overall S&P 500 anyway. It, It tends to come in right around 5%. And I think that's going to continue. One thing that's, I think, key for thinking about next year, because we do have some headwinds. You know, I mentioned the 
rising rates, rising dollar is there as well. That's a headwind, rising oil. Those are all headwinds. But what I don't think is fully appreciated is that there's another round of fiscal stimulus that will hit the economy next year, not so much in the form of the tax cut, but in the form of increased government spending. And so, and, and even with some friction on the trade front, the fiscal boost that, we're, that we get next year is going to overwhelm that. So the economy is in pretty good shape. And uh, I, I don't see on the horizon mm -hmm. uh, a situation where you yeah. can say, let's worry and, about a recession. John, I think this is critical from Howard Ward's optimism's huge outperformance over five, six, eight, even 10 years. But the, the, the gloom that's out there, and we're all steeled for Friday doom and gloom equity yeah. letters, is not only that, but in this jobs report today, it hasn't slowed down much. I mean, the gloom story is going to be sort of presented to us straight after the numbers drop. When you get better wage growth at some point over the next several months, the argument what will be you see the cost do? pressure. The cost inflation is there, Howard. I want to get to this argument that actually we could get EPS acceleration through 2019 as well. Yeah, do you it's think not that can happen? happen? It's not going to happen. You don't think that can happen? No, because you had the big boost this year from the tax reform. Without the tax reform, we would have had maybe 12% growth in earnings this year, and with it, it's over 20%. And so the expectations for next year is that we'll have, and I'm talking S&P 500 here, we'll have S&P 500 earnings growth of approximately 10% next year, and maybe just a hair less than that in 2020, even though it's a little bit early to be focused on that. So we can't, we can't do better uh, in 2019 because we don't have the big tax cut yeah. to, to hit earnings the, the way it has this last year. And one thing that that tax cut has done, in addition to having the good, good economy with the change in the repatriation of foreign cash, the U.S. companies have been able to not only continue to buy back stock at a record rate, about $700 billion this, on, on a trailing 12-month basis, that's almost double what it was in the previous year, but they're also able to boost capital spending by about 8%. Uh, so we've got about, uh, about $800 billion of capital spending now that's, that's projected for the next 12 months. This is a big change. So you, you get the fiscal stimulus for next year, and, and I should have mentioned also yeah. a, a nice increase in capital spending that we've been waiting for for a long time. Yeah. You know, I, I, I look, Howard, at, at what to buy, and, and we've hardly touched on the financials today. Every conversation John and I have is thumb up, thumb down on the financials. Do they have the cash generation that's required for Gabelli? Yes, they do, Tom. The financial sector, of, of course, has a variety of names in it, depending on which indices you look at, because it can include the the Visas and the MasterCards and the PayPals and a number of non-bank financial service companies, but it also obviously includes the bank, but the banks. But I would say across the board, mm -hmm. all of these companies are are in a position where they're generating handsome free cash flows, and the yeah. banks the banks are beneficiaries of higher rates. Right. But of course, if the yield curve continues to flatten, that's yeah, not okay. going to help them so much. And of course, loan demand's a factor. But generally right. speaking, this should be a very good period for the banks printing money, free cash flow, buying back stock, and increasing dividends. Howard, um, I, this is really important, and that, that I've got to be inflicted upon me weekend English football here in the next coming three hours with John and his other properties. No, I thought we were excited about Yankees, well. um, Red Sox. John, did you see the 24-page New York Post What does it say on the fold front? Fold out Tear of, the, down of the Yankees. This and, and 
this is the fold-out. For those of you worldwide and It says uh, Yanks coast to out coast to slay and, Boston Monster. Yes, and Howard, would you as a, as a dyed-in-the-world New Yorker explain to Mr. Farrow how special this is to seven zip codes? It doesn't get any better than Yankees, Red Sox come the fall when it's playoffs. It is absolutely yeah. the, the best drama that baseball can produce. So I'm looking forward to What's it. What's the equivalent in English football? Um, I'm going to say Manchester United-Liverpool. As, as a league game, that would probably be a big, big league game, traditionally speaking. Yeah, but, but they don't tie in baseball. And I, sh- I should say, Mario, if you're listening, uh, you can go ahead and invite me to come to one of these games. <laughs> does, does, yeah. does, does Mario have a box? What do you mean, does Mario have a box? Is the Pope Catholic? Has he got a box there? Not one of those why, super... Why, no, he has... Why are you going? He has seat, you know, you're... Nice seats. It's not how many right. seats? It's just one 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 of those, you know, there's four of us, four of us around a table. Yeah. I'm just that's why I'm asking. Yeah, it's not like one of those. It's not one of those expensive how things. How much, how much space is there? Mike Mario Gabelli just wants to be like the wonderful Michael Price and get a Yankees rock on his finger. You know, when Michael Price would show up, he'd always wear his Yankees ring just to aggravate me. It's like you know, it's a kid's blue. I don't, I don't think it's too difficult to aggravate you. No, that's um, true. On a that's weekday true. morning, to be honest with you. Worldwide, this Yankees Red Sox, this is Bloomberg. We want to go over now to the policy of driving the American labor economy forward. We can do that with Betsy Stevenson at Michigan, former uh, chief economist for Department of Labor, among other things, and one of our most thoughtful thinkers on the idea of policy, on the idea of the broad spectrum of the American labor economy. Betsy, I, I mentioned earlier with Jim Glassman, it is a gilded age. There is an inequality. Is this better job economy? Is an Eisenhower like 3.7 unemployment rate bringing our inequalities to a lesser point? Um, well, in some clear respect, it is because if you take a look at um, the unemployment rate, you'll see that you know, unemployment has come down most sharply for people with less education, um, and that's created a reduction in inequality. There is a reduction in inequality, but I'm getting so much mail arguing when market economists, people like Dr. Glassman, say that we're a fully employed America. There's a huge body of people that don't agree with that including, I would suggest, a lot of people that support President uh, Trump as well. We've got wage growth, and let's say it's 3% round, but is, is it a barbell wage growth where some are getting large wage growth and many others are getting less than large? Yeah, so let me be clear. When I say that this is helping with inequality, it's helping in one dimension, which is that we're seeing people across the spectrum being able to find work. Now, the the quality of that work, the desirability of that work, and how much it pays is still varying enormously. Um, we're seeing wage gains that continue to go primarily to the top end of the income distribution. We have seen nominal wage growth pick up slightly, but we've also seen inflation pick up slightly. And so we're not really seeing any pickup in real wage growth. And real wage growth is what matters for the bottom line. What you right. care about not how many dollars are in your pocket, but what you right. can buy with those dollars. Betsy Stevenson, we'd like a longer conversation here in the coming days and weeks at the University of Michigan.
There are any number of things to speak of with Timothy O'Brien of Bloomberg Opinion, including his definitive work on the finances of the president. Maybe we'll touch on that here in a moment. What he is is a student of history, and Mr. O'Brien and I would agree that given the Beltway uproar over Judge Kavanaugh and all, somehow the number of people, Tim, that don't know their history, it's just breathtaking. Noah Feldman with that fabulous Bloomberg Opinion article today, going back to the Scorpions and going back to the court of another time. In a resume, Tim, you always see this, the first in his family to attend college. His father was a metal lather buried in the factories of Pittsburgh, and Orrin Hatch made it through academics, growing up in poverty, out to Utah and to be a force of a Senate. The son of a metal lather is going after the guy living above Gucci on Fifth Avenue. What's Orrin Hatch want from President Trump? Well, this is interesting, Tom. This week, after the New York Times dropped this huge story on uh, the Trump family's tax maneuvers over decades, Hatch said that he thought that the president should release his tax returns, which is is uh, an interesting thing, given that Hatch has largely been supportive of most of the president's policies. And as we know, the president doesn't want to release his tax returns. So one wonders why now. And perhaps it's that uh, there's damage being done by uh, this lack of disclosure around the president's finances. I've asked you this before. Let's get an update. What's in the tax returns? Uh, the tax returns would show how robust his businesses really are. He doesn't run a Fortune 500 empire. It's a boutique family business that's largely about marketing. Uh, it would show what kind of money he's getting overseas. That's obviously relevant in the context of the Mueller investigation. Mm-hmm. It's relevant in the context of just good government. I think we should know what possible influences are coming to bear yeah. on the person in the Oval Office. But George Bush Sr. and maybe George Bush Jr., you know, they had oil interests. I mean, they were transactional in business. And they, and they released their tax returns. And they released their tax returns. And they created effective trusts to insulate them from any decisions around right. those holdings once they became president. President Trump has done neither of those things. I mean, within that is, and I think it's a big deal that 84-year-old Orrin Hatch is saying, come on, now's the time. Is well, there any interest in that? Uh, I think there's going to be ample interest after the midterms. Okay, what happens in the midterms? Well, let's say two two things. Democrats take the House, and just percolating now with Greg Vallier and Mike Allen and Axios and others, Democrats take the Senate. Those are two different things, aren't they? They are. And if um, on the tax front, if, if Democrats don't have both houses, it would be hard for the Congress okay. to compel the return. But if they do, they can literally, in conjunction with the IRS— force a release of the president. How could that be? The IRS is an executive branch, isn't it? Uh, but the the IRS has to be beholden to certain mandates coming out of the Congress in certain okay. situations. And okay. this is one of them. Just because of time, let's uh, switch gears here. The New York Times article on the president's finances. Um, I, I, everyone agreed, whatever their party, it was a it was a profound investigative piece. What was the thing in there that made Tim O'Brien sit up and, and read? Um, I think the, the, the extensive detail they had on the use of tax shelters by the Trump family over decades to shelter hundreds everybody of millions Every, of dollars. Stop it. Everybody did it. But everybody did it. And I think a big portion of what they did was perfectly legal. There is a portion in there that smells, okay. that looks dubious, but it's a long time ago and it's a debate. I, I don't think there's going to be any criminal charges coming out of this. There may be some civil fines. The one thing that really pops to me Please. in the whole piece was that Donald Trump, while his father slipped into Alzheimer's, attached a codicil to his father's will in order to try to get executive authority 
and to become the executor over his father's entire business empire. And Fred noticed this, even though he was getting cloudy, and he asked his daughter, the judge, to look at it. She also thought it smelled. So they took the whole process out of Donald's hands and hired a new estate attorney for themselves so they could redraft Fred's will so his son couldn't get control of the empire. Is that estate attorney available for various investigations now? Uh, presumably, but again, these are, you know, there's a statute ago. of limitations here, and yeah, a lot of this stuff yeah, is ancient. Yeah. Let us talk about uh, uh, Kavanaugh again. Tim O'Brien with this of Bloomberg Opinion, and, and it is very much that. In opinion, uh, your team with David Shipley has written a number of editorials about the nuances of this moment. What will you watch today and then into the Saturday vote? Well, I think clearly how, um, you know, the key Republican senators on this particular vote are lining up, uh, Jeff Flake, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. Yeah. You know, we've known that for a while. That that hasn't changed. I think what's interesting is the debate around Kavanaugh himself has moved um, off of uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault and on to issues about his credibility and, and his veracity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but even, you know, the people making the arguments about his temperament, that that's not an issue, they haven't taken on this core thing about the fact that he lied demonstrably yeah. during his testimony. I mean, I was thunderstruck by his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today. I mean, I'm sure if he dialed 1-800-TIM-O'BRIEN, you would have said, sure, we'll run that op-ed. I get that. But was that a appropriate that a nominee would would what's the, you're smarter than me on the language what's the right word advocate for himself well i mean he's been doing this for quite a while he was lobbying oh, but come on, the votes like in six hours and i know he's, but he's been doing this out. throughout i'm saying i don't i don't i think i don't think he is he's out of the box as a supreme court nominee he's doing things no nominee has done before in that op-ed he said that he would hate to see the uh the supreme court uh, broken apart by partisanship, but that's that's said by the conductor of the train that has already left the station. He's part and parcel of that problem. Is he setting himself up with whatever events occur where he says, you know, I've been through the process for the good of the country and Tim O'Brien, I'm going to pull my nomination. Is that what we're going to see in the next 18 no, hours? No, I don't think he's going to do okay. that unless you see the Republicans turn against him. <clears throat> like, within where we go from here, and I, you know, obviously we could talk to Professor Feldman or others. And, and folks, I should say Bloomberg Opinion and Bloomberg in general, our legal coverage has been fabulously balanced, I think, with different opinions, whether it's John Coffey on Tesla or it's it's Noah Feldman of Harvard on the history of the Supreme Court and some of these these emotional culture war Ramesh issues. Pernuru. Ramesh Pernuru as well, yes. leading a conservative and a uniquely conservative charge as well. Let's go there. When this is done, the first Wednesday of November, what will be the new conservative thought or is it still Trumpism even going into 2020? Uh, on the, uh, right after the midterms? Yeah. I, I think, um, look, I, you know, I think all journalists have been chastened about trying to predict where votes are going to go. But if um, the polling is to be relied upon, it looks like the Democrats have a very decisive advantage in the House and the Senate is still up in the air. I think even if the Democrats get the House, a lot of what Trump has been able to do thus far is going to get complex because committees like Judiciary, oversight and intelligence are going to start launching subpoena bombs at the White House, and it's going to really tie the White House up in knots. Let's talk journalism. Uh, you, you've been a student of this with your, with your work with different vendors over the years. Mark Benioff wants to buy Time magazine. What would you do with it? 
Well, you know, I think we're in an era right now where there are wealthy people who see media properties as as entities that they can revive by simply flooding it with resources. And as you know, it's much more complex than that. I think Jeff Bezos taking over the Washington Post was a happy event for journalism, and I hope for him. Uh, he's bringing some innovation to it, but he's also he also got his hands on a legacy newspaper that already had a loyal, loyal audience. And brought in a horse from Boston, I should point out, Mr. <laughs> yeah, Barron. Yeah, the real and deal. he got the great Marty Barron. But, yeah. um, you know, he, he was able to bring resources to something that was already a fairly so glowing do do? media you, you, enterprise. You, you, time is, time is struggling. Well, no, because I think there's a difference. Time is... I, I, I was making that, a... It's a contrast. I don't think the Times... Pro, I, don't think the, I don't think the Time, Inc. properties are at the top of their game in the same way the Washington Post is. Interesting. And that matters if you're going to have a successful media enterprise. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. Timothy O'Brien with Bloomberg Opinion writing. He'll be writing. When do you publish it? Today? I mean, your day starts at what? Your day it's starts at, at like 5 8, 8 32, 5 8 32, 5 a.m. 5 a.m. every day. Sure. I wave Are at you. you. I wave it? at you as I pass oh, you on you? my way to the office. Very good. Tim yeah. O'Brien, thank you so much and look for his work, uh, particularly on the finances of the president. Of course, his important book of a few uh, years ago. From New York City for our audience worldwide, I'm pleased to welcome our listeners on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg TV for the Trump administration's view on what is happening. Let's bring in Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director, who joins us now. Larry, good morning to you, sir. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it very much. It's good to see you. We won't get wrapped up in that 134 because the upward revision is pretty decent and the overall picture that's, for the labor market is really pretty point. good. So let's Can start I just talking. stick it in? Let's no, I just want to make that point. I don't mean to interrupt. But that's a really key point, because you of all people know how these numbers bump around. So you got a 130-something, and you got an 80,000-plus uh, revision. So this is actually, you know, the increase in the level for September is, uh, what, a two, 211, 215,000. That's an awful good number. I just want to make that point. It's a point well made, Larry. So let's talk about the unemployment rate. 48-year low. For the administration, what's your view on how low this can go? Because many economists are saying we're at full employment. This is kind of it. We can't go much lower than this. Do you have a different opinion, Larry? Well, I don't want to give a forecast per se, but I do think it can go lower. And I think people are moving back into the labor force as wages and incentives uh, increase. You know, lower taxes and so forth. You got fatter paychecks going. Uh, I just did some calculations. I hope I get this right. The uh, average hourly earnings up 2.8% year on year in the report. But Jonathan, I like to add the work hours. The increase in work hours for the year is uh, 2.6. So you put those two together, you got 5.6% per increase in wage income. And I'm going to take the PCE data at two, right? The inflation at two. That's a three and a half, 3.6% real wage increase that's huge and all i'm saying is after taxes that's going to bring more people into the workforce so we're growing in a capital goods boom and i think unemployment has some downside to go but mostly it's a very healthy story and the data this week has been pretty stellar the adp report earlier this week gave us a pretty good sign of what was happening the non-manufacturing ism all of this, Larry, is driving a pretty sustained bid back into the U.S. dollar. It was stable for a period of this year. It's starting to rally again. And I just wonder whether the president thinks that what is happening in the FX market is offsetting some of the accomplishments elsewhere. 
Well, no, look, the dollar's actually been pretty steady. I have it on my sheets from yesterday, 95 and three quarters, call it 96. That's pretty much in the mid-range, I think, of the last 10 or 12 years. It's gone up and down. A healthy dollar is a healthy economy. A healthy dollar attracts investment for all over the world, and we're providing enough incentives and competitiveness, again, on low taxes and regulations to bring money home. I think it's a terrific positive. I, you know, I think it's a great read on the success of the country. Uh, our view, the Treasury view, Stephen Mnuchin's view is we would like a stable, you know, stable, steady, strong dollar as far as the eye can see. Looks like we're getting that. There's a lot of confidence here. Is that the president's view too, Larry? I think generally it is the president's view. president has a lot of opinions, uh, sometimes up, sometimes down. We're not trying to influence anybody's policy. We're not trying to influence the Fed's policy. We're not trying to influence the dollar policy. It's steady as you go. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, Jay Powell, as you know, has made a lot of interesting statements saying that better growth, which is what we're getting, is not necessarily inflation. And I would say, Jonathan, if you have a steady dollar, you got a low, steady gold price, uh, that's a big sign there's no inflation out there. We're just growing. And you were talking about bond rates a few moments ago. Uh, I don't know what your quote is this morning, about 3.2% for the 10-year, I think. That's up about 35 basis points. So it's the long end of the curve. It's not the Fed funds rate. But most of that is the real interest rate, the real tips rate, which is up, I think, three quarters or you know, almost 80%. What does that tell you? I suggest people are expecting higher capital returns and stronger U.S. economic growth ahead. That's a very positive sign. Larry, I've got to say, your analysis of the bond market is spot on. It is a pickup in real rates through the last week that's really driven the 10-year and a 30-year yield out to, to new 2018 highs. You said you don't want to influence anyone's policy, maybe domestically, but internationally we know that's not true. So let's talk about China. I wonder if you saw the Bloomberg reporting over the last 24 hours that revealed how China used a tiny chip to hack into and infiltrate some of the supply chains of some of the biggest companies on the planet, including U.S. companies. Larry, have you read that story, and is it something the administration is looking into? Well, you know, I read every Bloomberg story. I have no doubt, Larry. And I, you know, I, I look at all your tapes, Jonathan, and I try to memorize all of them so I'm up to speed. I will only say that I have some uncertainty because a lot of these companies, I believe Apple in the lead, have denied the story. They have denied so the story. I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that. But I think it's a good thing to be on guard because our Chinese so-called friends have done a lot of mischief in that area, uh, not least of which, in addition to these uh, chips and stealing of technology, cyber hacking. So I don't know the bottom line. Maybe you'll help me clarify it as the day goes on, but I'd sure keep a yeah. watch on it. Well, Larry, they have denied that story, but there's some pretty strong sourcing behind the reporting here at Bloomberg, as I'm sure you can imagine, that kind of backs it up pretty well, which is why we published it. And I do think it takes us to a bigger conversation about trade, Larry. Economists typically always talk about trade through the allocation of scarce resources and the most efficient allocation of scarce resources and where should things be produced etc etc they typically ignore national security do you think we have got a series of examples which do justify why manufacturing a lot of manufacturing does need to be domestic well look um, our policy the president's trade policy you know has put the Chinese on notice that we cannot accept their uh, unfair trading practices, theft of IP, 
forced transfer of technology. You've heard this and you've heard it from me and others. Uh, high tariffs on industrial and agriculture commodities and non-tariff barriers. They won't let American companies own uh, 51 or 55 percent. That's where the tech uh, uh, is stolen. Um, sometimes they say, yeah, we'll give you ownership, but we won't give you license. So what is that good, uh, good does that do? So the president has been on guard. Uh, he believes that the uh, whole trading relationship is broken. And we have been, as you know, negotiating on and off. It has been unsatisfactory thus far. I think, uh, as Secretary Mnuchin has said, better to talk than not talk, but the talks have to be serious. And maybe, I want to underscore maybe, Jonathan, there might be a meeting with the two presidents, Xi and Trump, down in Buenos Aires uh, in late November at the G20. But that's a maybe. I can't confirm that. So possibly. So far, it's been unsatisfactory. We've done very well. We've done very well, as you know, on the U.S. Uh, MCA. I hope I got that right. I got to learn that new phrase. We're opening <laughs> up trade discussions with Europe. We're opening up trade discussions yep. with Japan. Those sends a signal to China. We signed a tripartite, Jonathan, EU, USA, and Japan against unfair trading practices and other illegal trades. Uh, that was aimed at China. So the Western allies are very much united here, but so far we just haven't got any results Larry, from China. Larry, you're making some really good progress solving some of the trade disputes. Um, you can't tease me like that with a meeting of Buenos Aires. Are there talks about doing that right now? Are you having talks about setting that up at the moment? I'm sorry, I missed that last one. Are you having talks about setting up a meeting in Buenos Aires between the two leaders of China, of the United States? Are those talks uh, right there, now? There, there is discussion about that. I, I can't confirm it. I'm just saying there is discussion about that. Um, before then, Jonathan, I don't, I don't think so. I don't hear it. I'd love to be wrong. Again, personally, I think it's better to talk than not talk. But the talk has to be serious and significant. No smoke blowing. You know, come with concrete proposals. Say yes to something we've offered. Because the relationship's got to change. You know, the president wants to protect American workers, farmers, ranchers, the whole economy. We want to be on a level playing field. Uh, if they open their uh, barriers, we will export, sell, a million kajillion goods and services. We're the hottest, most competitive economy in the world. And by the way, if China really wants to help its consumers, then let Americans supply our superior goods. But we just haven't had any satisfaction on that yet. Larry Kudlow, great to catch up with you from the White House. Really appreciate your time, sir, as always. And always a great sport following Payrolls Friday. And some great analysis of the bond market there, gents, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.